You're listening to City is Playground, a podcast by Leadership Foundations. I get to be the host. My name's Rick, and I'm here with LF President Dave Hillis. How are you doing, Dave? I'm good, Rick. Good to see you. Well, you know, we're just about running out of sunscreen, so uh, turn the corner here on fall. But it's exciting because we are living in a unique time, but we are also in the middle of uh, something I think that's so fitting, and that is this this new series on imagining abundance. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's such a, you know, important uh, reality to leadership foundations. Again, going full circle here, Rick, but this notion of a city as a playground is God's playground. You know, one of the things we relentlessly want to talk about is that when it gets to this whole issue of the economy, that it becomes actually one of abundance rather mm -hmm. than scarcity. And yet, as you and I've talked, um, it is uh, hard at times, uh, given yeah. the world that we live in in the current times, to actually believe that. And so I think to explore that quality, to uh, talk to practitioners, which we're going to have the chance uh, to do, uh, is absolutely essential to kind of begin to sort of play this thing out and see what it looks like. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, uh, as, as a kid growing up, you know, my dad used to always say, uh, you know, hey, my father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And I'd say, like, uh, can, when are we going to get a steak? You know, I mean, so so sometimes the, the reality that we are, you know, we yeah. are, in fact, connected with uh, the abundant one. Uh, but yeah. also that getting in a, in a position where we not only, um, you know, understand and believe that, but we experience it. So that's, I think, what's so great about talking to uh, these local leadership foundations and uh, and finding out like on the ground in different locations around the world uh, how this you know how this actually works and what their experience is because I think that's the, the encouraging part. Yeah, well, and I think the, one of the things too, Rick, that you know we're going to tease into what I hope are people's kind of theological imaginations is that uh, God is abundant, uh, but then how do you account at times for what? appears to be that lack thereof. And I and our argument here is that, and this goes back to the feeding of the 5,000, uh, is that it has everything to do with how we begin to see each other, mm -hmm. right? That, that the abundance is there, uh, but because of our relationships, or probably more accurately, our lack of relationships with each other at times, that's what tends to block the kind of abundance uh, that I think we believe should be there yeah. moving forward. So it'll be wonderful to, again, talk about, you know, how do you properly align those relationships in such a way that that abundance can flow in the ways that we uh, imagine? Yeah, and I think that that also speaks, Dave, to the fact that sometimes when we talk about abundance or we use the word economy, we forget about the, like you said, the you know, uh, you know, spiritual economy, sociological economy, uh, you, you know, yeah. different, different kind of emotional economy, all those kinds of things. And we strictly, you know, start thinking about the budget, you know, and so I think that's what's important. I think that to have a, a broader understanding of uh, abundance, especially, uh, you know, and we know that there are uh, some incredible examples in scripture uh, that we can draw from, I, I think, yeah. often about the, you uh, you know, when Jesus hired, the, uh, told the story of the the workers that were hired, you know, that he, he, you know, everybody got mad that worked all day. And he said, because, because didn't we make an arrangement that you'd work all day, but they were mad because he's so abundant. He's so generous that he yeah. said, I want to pay the other guys, just what everybody else got paid. So I think yeah. the, uh, 
Uh, that's another little kink that sometimes gets in there is the, Hey, that's not fair thing. You know um, you know, we've been yeah. slated away really? all day and these guys just showed up. But, uh, but I think yeah. when we understand abundance, but then, it, then when we see that kind of thing happen, we celebrate it, you know, and we're excited. Hey, look, you know, uh, somebody caught a break. Hey, something happened. Um, you know, instead of, Hey, we've been writing that grant for, you know, a decade <laughs> and then they come sweeping in, you know, that kind of thing. So now one of the things that's great is that I think the, uh, the location, not just geography, but including that, but the, um, you know, even, I guess, you know, what we call it, uh, the anthropocentric uh, idea that the people of the location, uh, it makes it so interesting because this uh, episode, we're going to go to Fresno, California. And Absolutely. I think that, you know, there's a, we got a lot to learn from um, uh, the leaders in Fresno. So it'll be exciting for us to, uh, to hear from uh, uh, Randy White and uh, Carlos Huerta, who are, uh, we had a chance to have a conversation with, and, uh, you know, why don't you set us up with, you know, um, uh, I alluded to, uh, the workers, but, you know, and you alluded to the feeding of the 5,000, but, um, we were talking earlier about another image, scriptural image. Yeah. I mean, so one of the things that I would just say, about you know, the gospels in general, and one of the ways I think to watch Jesus begin to walk through them is that there's almost a sense in which everything he touches uh, has an abundant quality to it. I mean, mm-hmm. right, something as early as, uh, you know, John 2 and uh, the wedding at Cana, and mm-hmm. there's this, this wonderful, abundant, you know, kind of moment. You think about, you know, things like, uh, you know, throw your fish or you throw your net out on the other side, and all of a sudden the nets can hardly hold all the fish and they have to bring another boat. So, that's one of the characteristics that I would just say is true almost in every encounter. But the one that that has, uh, how do I say it? I mean, maybe most touched me. It occurs in Luke 7, and it's where Jesus has been invited to effectively a, a power meal, right? I mean, of mm-hmm. the who's who in town. And, uh, you know, they're all kind of leaning around the table. And uh, now all of a sudden, uh, a woman uh, who is never given a name in the story, uh, interestingly enough, um, somehow is able to crash the party uh, in such a way that, uh, you know, she shows up and then begins to, in effect, be extravagant, right? Be abundant in her actions towards Jesus. Yeah. Um, Right. She uh, begins to anoint, you know, his feet, you know, with this kind of costly perfume. Um, You know, she begins to dry his feet with her long hair. As an aside, um, you know, most biblical exegetes would say that, you know, uh, the woman who had, of course, perfume and long hair was most likely a woman of the night, um, that this Mm -hmm. was her her trade. Yeah, and I think her first name was this. (laughs) <laughs> because <laughs> if you knew who this woman was yeah <laughs> exactly and that's exactly what happens and you know you can just imagine for a moment right i mean here they're sitting in this kind of enclosed quarters and you know, that that perfume smell right would just begin to overtake the place and so mm-hmm. you're exactly right rick the guy that's kind of heading things up says you know yeah if you knew who this woman was you, know, you wouldn't allow for such a thing yeah Jesus in this really elegant way kind of turns the tables and says, you know, you gave me no wealth effectively, right? You uh, did not treat me in any kind of abundant way. And yet she has, you know, 
time uh, from the beginning has done it over and over and over again. And, you know, you have this great sort of kind of conclusion uh, about the idea, you know, of what it means uh, to, you know, be loved and to yeah. sin and to be human. But the other thing that really touches me, Rick, in this um, is that not only does she have no name, <clears throat> but the loudest voice in this story is the woman who never speaks. Uh, and that is just, a, I think, a remarkable sort of almost, you know, reflection on mm-hmm. how and in what ways uh, abundance can work and how it doesn't need a name, right? It doesn't yeah. need a voice uh, and it can still uh, perform in the way that it did. So, yeah, that that's, a again, in the midst of all the stories of abundance, this one uh, feels like almost a little bit of a, a Mount Everest-like reality. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, yeah, that's that's a such a cool insight, Dave. The idea of, um, you know, her anonymity and and her silence did not in any way, uh, I mean, uh, change you know the the power. I mean, that we're still telling that story, you know, right now. Uh, so I think that's yeah. important for us to remember because sometimes we think if, if it doesn't have our logo or you know if we didn't get a you know some kind of a uh, you know recognition that you know that that's that's what the point was. And I also think about how. You know, a lot of times in um, in recovery programs, you know, they they talk about hurt people, hurt people. You know, so mm-hmm. when someone's hurtful, it's because well, they were probably mistreated. Yeah. Think, you know, th- this story uh, goes the other way, and it says you know that people that have been treated extravagantly, you know, they do extravagant things. You know, yep. and and I think she, uh, you know, I think that the big idea is that you know if you're if you if you've been loved. You know, if you've been, if you understand forgiveness at this level, yeah, then then you then you get what's happening. So I think yeah. that's great, and yeah. I think that we see that um, not only in in you know uh, specific LFs, but definitely in in Fresno. Why don't you introduce us to the you know yeah. your some of your experience in Fresno? Well, one maybe before I go there, maybe two things real quickly, Rick, because you you brought them up, and I think they carry with them. Uh, weight when it comes to doing work in cities. Um, you know, the first is that sense of anonymity. Um, oftentimes, I think when you go into a city uh, and you're doing work, you, you know, you're drawn to uh, those power structures, right? Those things that oftentimes define a city. It's the, it's the high rise, it's the right side of town. It's, you know, the particular high school that everybody wants to get into. Um, part of what I think this moves us to is our line of sight becoming, you know, directed to things that maybe don't draw attention. Yeah. Um, that people wouldn't necessarily notice. And that often uh, those can be extraordinary places of, of abundance, I think, moving forward. Mm-hmm. And that's been very key, you know, I think to, to Ellop's work. Um, the second part of that as well is that, um, the abundance can happen and probably even more often than not does happen when it is not in the, you know, limelight, right. That it, it, you know, you could almost maybe argue to the degree that you are receiving a kind of attention or, um, you know, applause for what you're doing. You are 
you know, abundance is diminishing rather than increasing. And, uh, you know, we've all heard the old adage that, you know, it's amazing how much can get done if you don't, you know, have to take credit for it. And yeah. I think that yeah. that idea holds true here. Uh, that really comes out of this John or this Luke seven story. So yeah, that's a segue for sure to say that, you know, one of the great examples of this, uh, in the LF global network, um, is uh, Randy and Carlos and the Center for Community Transformation. Um, let me say just a couple things about them because they've got a unique model that's been really fun to watch. Um, as they begin to think about Fresno, instead of going and creating their own 501c3, uh, they actually looked uh, to an institution that was trying to get into the city or at least perhaps be more effective in the city uh, and hadn't been able to, you know, figure out a way to do it, and that was mm -hmm. none other than Fresno Pacific uh, University. That it was a long time, is a long time institution, yeah, uh, in Fresno. And like many in the university system, right? I mean, certainly this is true at times in Tacoma, uh, other cities. You know, islands begin to grow up around universities, um, and they they almost kind of operate, you know, in these separate kind of worlds from the city that they're actually embedded in. You know, I yeah. think of a couple of universities here. Well, Fresno Pacific began to recognize that about itself and said, "We don't want it to happen." feel like our mission, our Christian mission um, would be in some ways uh, nulled if we did that. So they sat down with Randy and began to talk about, could there be a leadership foundation embedded within Fresno Pacific? Um, and that part of its charge would be to actually help the university engage the city uh, while, of course, that local leadership foundation expression itself was engaging the cities. So they created the Center for Community Transformation, and it actually sits within uh, Fresno Pacific University. And I've had a chance uh, to be there uh, multiple times. I actually had a chance to facilitate their accreditation. And it is a very intriguing model uh, that I think uh, going forward actually is something that could uh, be repeated in other cities. Um, mm -hmm really around uh, the world because every university is having a hard time figuring out how to get traction, you know, in the city. And oftentimes, you know, the local leadership foundation could use the institutional support that a Fresno Pacific uh, brings. So that's just a bit about their uh, leadership foundation. Um, the other piece that I would say about, uh, their work. Um, again, every leadership foundation is committed to the wheel of change. But when you get to that third function, which is, you know, kind of developing joint initiatives, what Randy, you know, and Carlos, initially Randy and then Carlos came on later, recognizing uh, where Fresno is located, um, you know, it's highly agricultural, um, uh, a very uh, high uh, kind of uh, Latinx uh, percentage uh, of people working that the best thing that they could do was actually get into this sort of jobs space and uh, really try to use, uh, you know, the wheel of change to create opportunities for jobs, for job training, uh, they actually have a program where they have kind of a, a bit of a shark tank kind of deal where people get a chance to float uh, different business ideas um, because they're uh, 
conviction, right, is that a lot of the transformation of Fresno moving to a playground rather than a battleground is really going to be around, can we get women and men uh, with the kind of employment, uh, the kind of job, the kind of wage that really allows them to live a life uh, that flourishes. And so it's a, it's a really marvelous program. In fact, uh, just recently, it's gotten some national attention. Uh, we've been able to uh, actually write uh, a grant. We hope it'll get funded. We don't know, but to the Small Business Administration mm-hmm. um, around job creation. And we used um, the Center for Community Transformations model uh, as the, the model of the uh, the proposal we wrote. So it's uh, it's great. On top of all that, uh, I'll say these kind of final two things. Um, Randy has been a longtime friend. Um, He, uh, for many, many years, was uh, the director of urban work for InterVarsity. And then he uh, became a head of the doctoral program for Baki Graduate University. Uh, So he's a wonderful teacher and uh, thoughtful guy. also, though, very committed to making sure that the leadership looks like the community uh, that he's in service to. And so here now, uh, a few years ago, as he began to think about succession with regard to his position, uh, found this, this really pretty spectacular talent uh, in Carlos. And so it's been, again, just uh, wonderful to watch them begin to walk through that process where slowly... Uh, Randy is handing off uh, the reins um, of the Leadership Foundation there in Fresno to Carlos. And probably within, uh, you know, I would say even the next year, uh, Carlos will officially become uh, the president of the Center for Community Transformation. So it's a it's a success story at multiple levels. Yeah, that's great. And certainly uh, kind of unique for us to be able to hear from both of them. Um, because uh, you know, yep. like you said, and it was uh, earlier, it was just uh, Randy, and and in the future, it may be more just Carlos. But now we have the chance to hear from both of them. So uh, we're going to go to the breadbasket of the world in the San Joaquin Valley there, and uh, and uh, listen to uh, what's happening. And I love that. I just you know the idea of community transformation um, is you know obviously definitive of what we're talking about. Uh, you know, being transforming um, not only from you know, a, a battleground to a playground, but from scarcity to abundance in terms of, you know, mm-hmm. the, the outlook. So let's uh, let's listen in uh, to that conversation we have with these guys. Wonderful. Hi, my name is Carlos Huerta. I serve as the Associate Director at the Fresno Pacific University Center for Community Transformation. And I'm Randy White. I serve as the Executive Director at the FPU Center for Community Transformation. Yeah, so the Fresno Pacific University Center for Community Transformation uh, has been serving for nine years now, uh, launching in 2012. Um, It is an outward-oriented ministry center, a community benefit organization anchored at the Fresno Pacific Biblical Seminary and University. Uh, As a community benefit organization, our number one posture has been to listen to our community and uh, to address the issues that the community itself is raising. Uh, many of these ended up being centered on economic challenges uh, of our context. We're situated in California's Central Valley uh, and our region has the 10 poorest cities in California. They're dotted immediately around uh, the main city of Fresno. 
And so many of the challenges we address have to do with that economic challenge. And that includes um, exploitative lending practices. So we do financial literacy training, um, workforce readiness issues. Uh, so we do soft skills training. Um, we uh, see a huge need for small business ownership and entrepreneurship. So we do micro enterprise training and social enterprise, which helps churches and institutions uh, start small social businesses that employ people that have barriers to employment. Our context really does define what we lean into. Yeah, the San Joaquin Valley of Central California uh, is on the migrant highway in California. It's a very agricultural center. And so um, the migrant population has defined reality for Central California for, for generations. And um, the, the levels of poverty that exist inside that community uh, because of the way our agricultural system is, is structured uh, has led to a concentration of poverty that is the second highest in the nation of any large city, um, according to the Brookings Institute. So we have a higher rate of concentrated poverty than any other large city in the U.S. other than McAllen, Texas. And concentrated poverty is when any neighborhood has more than 40% of the residents living under the federal poverty line. We have 45 such communities just in the city limits of, of Fresno. Um, and so that attracts exploitative uh, lending practices and payday lenders. We have more uh, payday lenders in Fresno than Starbucks and McDonald's combined. And that defines the life of people who really become enslaved to uh, institutions like that and find it extremely difficult to, um, to carry themselves out. Um, so we have uh, educational challenges because of the rotating nature of migrant populations, uh, kind of the bubbling change in classrooms that's happening, uh, low levels of educational attainment. Um, it, it's, it's easy and tempting to look at all the problems of our region and to become overwhelmed by those problems, it, it really takes a, a clear decision to choose a posture other than sort of a scarcity need-based understanding. Um, even as I begin to describe our region when asking, you know, what, what issues have most greatly defined it, I, I find the red, the red warning signals going up in the back of my brain because uh, it's just so tempting to go down that road and stay there. But, we've learned a different posture, especially since our uh, connections have flourished with leadership foundations. And uh, that posture is a much more asset-based approach. That posture is a much more abundance-based approach. And uh, we find that that's actually the better key to flourishing and to transformation in a region. I am from the Central Valley here in California, about 25 minutes southwest of Fresno in a little town called Carruthers, California. Uh, I think something unique that we acknowledge here in, in the Central Valley is that rural for us is very diverse. Um, I've been, you know, as I've talked with folks across the country, most times they, they sum up rural as, as mainly white and in our region it's not necessarily that. 
Uh, and so I myself am the son of two immigrant parents um, and grew up in a single parent household for most of my life. And I think the the realities for us were, yeah, were, you know, myself being the oldest of three kids, my mom always working two or three jobs. And uh, we found ourselves out there a lot of the time with her. Um, and so once I, I became of age, I mean, I even found most of my early teen years working in any kind of agricultural setting. I mean, there were days where my mom and I would work 12 hours and make $30 for the day. Um, but that was enough to get us through the end of the day. And that is the just kind of the the reality for a lot of folks in our Central Valley. Um, and just kind of that lived experience I've I've come to realize and see in, in our work, right? You, Randy mentioned earlier some of uh, the challenges in our region, right? I think, yes, we are the, the breadbasket of the world as we're, we're always called. Uh, at the same time, we do lack industry diversification in, in, in our region. Uh, we don't do a lot of exporting here. And so I think that's something that's that I'm excited to see Fresno lean into in the Central Valley as well. Um, but for myself, early in you know my college years, I, I think part of the goal was to get an education and leave Fresno, right? And then I, I, I think that was kind of the language and this kind of brain drain that is so pervasive in our region. Uh, but I grew to fall in love with Fresno, um, mainly because of, of, of the man here with me, Randy White, who started an incarnation ministry uh, home here in downtown Fresno that actually gave me a deep appreciation for our city. Um, and yeah, I've had opportunities to leave, but I've always found myself called here to Fresno. Um, and again, they, I know we serve in a very urban context, but we've also been very intentional about serving in our rural towns and cities that, that gather around us through through each and every one of our programs. And Carlos said, uh, you know, uh, after he left the university, first in his family to go to college, uh, he worked for a, a local community benefit organization that sent him to 38 different states doing parent empowerment seminars. And the fact that he saw 38 incredible places across the country uh, and still chose to come back to Fresno and, and really invest here after he left that organization has helped to build our work in a way that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. But it says a lot about the lure of what God is doing in our city and a different way of looking at a city that is not overwhelming, but that's actually energizing and empowering. So I, it's it's great to be on a, on a team with uh, someone who's seen, seen the world and has come home. Uh, so, why are we leaning into economic systems in Fresno? Well, several years ago, we had an amazing mayor, um, uh, probably the smartest leader, uh, elected official uh, I've ever had the privilege of serving alongside, and uh, also dedicated to Jesus, dedicated to her city. Almost single-handedly changed the attitude of, of of the average person living in Fresno about their city. We had almost a pathological self-hatred of, uh, of our city because we only saw the negatives as a, a general population that she really began to change the tone and, 
helping us see the abundance of our place. So she gathered a bunch of faith leaders, pastors, nonprofit leaders, and she asked a question that just put them back on their heels. She said, what do you think is the role of the church in the economic well-being of a city? And I was in the room and I looked around and like, you know, I mean, ask a pastor or a faith leader about the social issues of the city, the spiritual needs of a city. They could talk until they suck all the oxygen out of the room. But ask about the economic well-being of a city. They didn't have an answer. They had no idea. No one had ever asked them that question before. So I gathered a group of uh, about 15 business, nonprofit, and church leaders. And for a year, we researched what churches we're doing across the country in terms of job planning, job training, job placement, or job creation. Um, and we came up with some amazing stories. We put them in a book that we called The Work of Our Hands, and we gave a copy to every pastor, 500 plus pastors in Fresno, and, and every nonprofit leader, and about 400 business people as well. Then we ran a series of conferences over a number of years called The Work of Our Hands to bring business and church leaders together to talk about the economic well-being of our city. And that's where we introduced um, our, our various economic systems. And maybe, Carlos, could you kind of walk through those uh, systems, the kinds of, of programming and initiatives that we're, uh, we're leaning into and have now for the last several years? You know... Early on, uh, we leaned into the social entrepreneurship space. The idea was to equip churches and build capacity in churches to start businesses. Um, one of one of the struggles that that I've had is I am a millennial, right? Uh, however, I, I think there's you know there's great things about millennials, and there's things that people don't always appreciate about millennials. Um, and and one thing that I I think I I would say in our social enterprise space was redeeming what a Christian business is to millennials and to the next generation. Um, in our in our landscape, I feel like we've done that, right? And so the on on the social enterprise side, um, again, the original idea was to serve churches. Uh, we've expanded that to both people of good faith and goodwill, uh, both institutional and individual folks. Uh, but so we, the way we do this is we engage people through what we call a social business plan workshop. We do a couple of these a year. People come and they about a two hour workshop and they'll essentially learn what it is a social business plan is that's different from a traditional business plan. Um, and then they'll submit a business plan into what we call our spark tank pitch fest process. We have a panel of judges that serve uh, on that spark tank panel. Uh, that are looking for three things, impact, viability, and creativity. Um, and so those three are essentially make up the rubric, if you will, for the strength of a proposal. And a, a year over year, we've accepted anywhere from four to 10 businesses into the Spark Tank process. Some years we might even have up to 25 or 30 submissions. Um, again, not all of them meet the criteria of Spark Tank. Um, and so after we make awards at a pitch fest, we then scholarship these Spark Tank winners into what we call our Social Enterprise Academy. Um, and that is uh, a, 
social enterprise accelerator essentially takes a business from idea to startup in two months. Pretty intense. We go very deep. And part of, you know, I think the beauty of, of our programs is we, we serve people all across the spectrum. And I say across the spectrum where we have people who come in with, with the impact problem really well designed, but they don't really know what their business problem is that they're solving. And on the other end, we have folks who have their business problems solved, but they don't really, they, they want to do something good in the community. Um, and, it, and it creates a great cohort every year. Um, and, and so having done that for nine years, the last few years, we had been hearing from the community, you know, Carlos, we love your social entrepreneurship work, uh, but really I have a need to like just provide for my family. Uh, and I have a side hustle that I want to do something with. Uh, I have an idea that's always kind of been in the back of my head and I don't want to be doing what I've always been doing. Um, and then COVID really highlighted this. People lost jobs, they lost hours. And <laughs> you know, people would say like, why would you expand programs in the middle of COVID? Uh, and actually we, we found that it was very timely in that time. And so last year, in the last, what is it now, 18 months, Randy, 16 months, we've worked with 44 businesses, or well, let's say entrepreneurs, and 32 out of those 44 have launched their business. Um, you know, some of those, you know, the ones that didn't launch figured out like, this isn't what I wanted to do after all, or entrepreneurship is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Uh, and so that's the reality. Um, and so I say that, uh, that we've worked with those folks in our micro entrepreneurship program that we did launch this last you know, almost two years now. I guess I, you know, I would I would say that we are an organization that activates ideas, not just explores ideas. You might think that because we're anchored at a university, we're all about just exploring ideas. That's what universities do, but no. Really, through my my connection with Ray Baki, uh, with uh, Dave Hillis at Leadership Foundations, CCDA, et cetera, we've learned that exploring ideas can be a starting place, but until they're activated, um, they can actually be unhelpful uh, if that's all we're th we think we're supposed to do is explore. So we try to activate ideas, and in that process, we have taken incredible inspiration from the most profound idea of all in the scriptures, which we think is shalom. And, you know, LF knows this term very well, Hebrew word that means abundance, security, prosperity, safety, um, well-being. It doesn't have a single English word equivalent. And so it, it theologian Perry Yoder says, shalom is making things the way they ought to be in people, and for people and between people. And so that, that understanding undergirds everything that we do. And, you know, so you might say, well, what about social enterprise? How does that relate to, to Shalom? And I would say, well, um, take a woman who finds herself in a, in a social crisis, her kids are about ready to be taken away from her. There's limited options. She's at her at the end of her rope, doesn't know what she's going to do. That's a very modern problem, urban problem, right? Now, actually, that was a problem in the um, 
ancient world too, 2 Kings 4, the wife of a prophet who had died comes to Elisha and says, I have nothing left. Predators are coming to take my children in slavery and help. And Elisha starts with, well, what do you have? He starts with her asset. He, it's an asset-based question. And she only has some oil. And then he says, well, go to your neighbors and get some pots and not just a few of them. So suddenly he's involving others, the neighbors, the community becomes part of the solution. Her sons help with the process. So her family is involved. Elisha is providing leadership and perspective. And then, oh yeah, God, the miracle you know, of reproduction. He multiplies the oil. And the last line of that passage is, go and sell the oil and you'll have enough to pay your creditors and to live on the rest. Rebaki's proposed maybe he just made her the little oil, the oil seller for the village that she lives in. Now she has a little cottage industry going. Um, that's a shalom-based solution, a market solution that emerges from thousands of years ago. And that informs everything we do. Um, so activating the ideas that we see uh, commerce being uh, a God-centered solution. Wow, it was so great to hear uh, from uh, Carlos and uh, and Randy, and especially as it related to some of the practices uh, that they're identifying so that they can see through the eyes of abundance. Kind of to touch on those uh, from your point of view, Dave. Yeah, I think to begin, Rick, and to just remind everybody that this idea of abundance is linked to how we see. Mm -hmm. um, and that there's a very direct relationship there. And I think, again, going back to Jesus, when he makes the comments about, you know, if the eye, you know, uh, is clear uh, mm -hmm. or if it's not clear, it has everything to do with, you know, do we see this world of abundance or not? Um, you know, and he starts in a place I thought, you know, again, this is exactly right. So simple, but so profound is pay attention. Well, I think, I mean, the first practice is to pay attention. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, it's actually the easiest one to do, but you don't do it because you're living your experience every day. It's easy to just lull yourself into um, some sense of, of, well, I know what this place is like. I don't have to look anymore. But our city tells this amazing story. Uh, first of all, there are the majestic uh, natural resources. Um, we're an hour from the largest trees in the world, Sequoia National Forest. We're, you know, an hour and a half from Yosemite, uh, one of the wonders of the world. We're two hours from the ocean. I mean, you can get anywhere in a heartbeat and experience the most amazing uh, things that California has to offer. So just the abundance of that. We feed the world. We are a cornucopia. Um, everything you can imagine, fruit, every nut, every um, fabric, uh, just the things that we provide the world, something like 80% of the nation's fruits and nuts come from this area. It's hard to walk in our area and not understand that this is an abundant place. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not scarcity in the midst of all the abundance. That's a great irony. You know, for 100,000 children in our city, that wake up every morning poor, it doesn't matter that we feed the world. We're not feeding them. 
very well. Uh, we may not live in a food desert, but we live in a food swamp where it's cheaper to go buy food that's just exceedingly bad for you than it is to get something nutritious. And so, yeah, there are, there are still these, these points of, of scarcity in the midst of the abundance, but just waking up in the morning, if you're paying attention, ought to help us understand how abundant this place is. And then you, you look at the, the human assets. I just got a call this morning from a woman who's a, a grandmother, uh, but who served the central bank in Manila as an accountant and has been working steadily for 15 years on the West side in some key entrepreneurial efforts that I had never met. And I've been in Fresno for almost 40 years now. There is so much going on in our city that here I was meeting a leader who actually is gonna contribute a lot. She's gonna do some coaching for us in our entrepreneurial settings. Uh, our launch Central Valley, which works with new sole proprietors. Uh, she's going to teach in our Kingdom Entrepreneurship course. Uh, she's going to be an amazing resource for her. I had no idea she existed. Uh, there is such abundance in our city that uh, paying attention and investing yourself, it, it, it brings all of those things to the surface. And so we we try to lean into the abundance and uh, that means we start there. What are the assets that we can then build on? Uh, so when we catalyze social entrepreneurs and social uh, sole proprietors, we, you know, we, we offer, uh, offer economic training and solutions connected to institutions of faith. And so you've got to get to know those institutions of faith. What are their strengths? What are their assets? Um, we run the Spark Tank, which is a, a, a social enterprise uh, uh, catalyst. We have invested, uh, Carlos, give me the numbers. What have we invested over the last eight years of this program in new social enterprises and how many of them are there and et cetera? Yeah, so we're up to $155,000 raised and invested across 58 social enterprises in our Central Valley. Um, you know, in our, in our work, and you'll hear us talk a lot about this, is we want to channel the creativity of our entrepreneurs um, who, who often don't have access to resources, if you will, and build an equitable model that helps folks. And we, we like saying fail fast, fail small, and fail forward. Figure out what doesn't work and, and scale your business healthily. Um, and so we, we also feel and take on this uh, lean startup approach. Uh, for those of you who are readers out there, there's a book out there by the name of The Lean Startup by Eric Ries. Uh, but we we often have entrepreneurs who think they need twenty dollars to $50,000 to get started. And as we start to ask questions and really explore what their business model is going to look like, realize you, you, you may only need a couple hundred, couple thousand dollars to, to start selling stuff tomorrow. Uh, and how can, how can we make that happen? And so really the goal of Spark Tank uh, is to help folks who may not have margin, if you will, to take a risk. Um, and, that, and that's really we, what we want to do. You know, sometimes people have dreams that 
never come to light or they simply die because they didn't have the resources um, or, you know, they, they have to leverage their home or car or something. And so we, we want to be able to create space for that. And we've seen really beautiful models in our city arise everything from, uh, you know, uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu gyms and coffee shops and thrift stores, landscaping services, computer repair shops. Um, there's been beautiful models all the way through and through. And so with that 145,000 or whatever that amount was, how much revenue have the enterprises that we've helped to catalyze generated over the last yeah. uh, few years? You know, our last, so uh, up until 2020, like three months into the pandemic is when we last measured this, but between 2017 to 2020, these businesses have generated about $4 million in revenue for our Central Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, these businesses have, you know, in, in our ecosystem, right? We've also seen some of our social enterprise partners and social enterprises from the Spark Tank create almost 1.3 million gallons of clean water. We've seen almost 3 million pounds of waste reduced from landfills. Uh, and and so there's, there and it, all the way up to you know over 150 people with barriers to employment have received employment. Um, to us, that's very significant. Um, and it's counterintuitive, isn't it? Because I mean, we have an employment problem in Fresno. Um, we we see churches that are struggling with revenue. Uh, you wouldn't you you would you know on the outside looking in, if you didn't understand and know, you'd think this there's scarcity is you know, hugely defines who we are. But now churches are finding new revenue streams through a social enterprise that they planted, a new way to do mission, to accomplish ministry in the lives of people who are struggling. So it's actually turned out to be, um, you know, sort of the the soil of desperation actually grew some beautiful plants and those plants are producing fruit right now. That should teach, you know, sort of a, a different posture, a different way of seeing. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that this happened with us. I've heard that said by Randy, of course. I've heard it said by some others. And it's kind of like, okay, you know, I, I mean, I got it. Um, and then I pause, of course, and I realize that right in that response, I wasn't paying attention. Um, and that paying attention, um, as, you know, Simone Weil, you know, the, the wonderful uh, French philosopher said many years ago, I mean, everything depends on that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, you know, don't pass go, right? Don't, you, you just, you, you can't go any further until you get some sense of being able to pay attention. Uh, and I um, have watched myself, you know, very slowly, but, you know, begin to grow, I think, in that, uh, you know, that ability, because uh, I've, I finally have begun to recognize that everything else that I want to do is going to, you know, really come down to whether or not I'm paying attention to what the Holy Spirit is already up to. So yeah, I thought yeah. I thought that comma was great by him. Yeah, and you know, and I think um, it's it almost gets back to there. There's an old hymn that I used to uh, remember from when I was a kid in church, and it was called "Count Your Blessings." You know, and it starts out say, "Are you know, are you discouraged? You know, are you, you know, are you downtrodden and all that?" And then the, you know, the the uh, encouragement was to count your blessings. So that was kind of a song they would sing every Thanksgiving season. You know, just hey, sit down, right. and, you know. <laughs> but I think it's true that if we if we in the pursuit of 
you know, more resources so we can be more effective and have a, you know, a broader footprint in, you know, in our impact. Sometimes we just need to stop and say, but we're thankful for what we do have, you know, that this is where we're at. We're paying attention to, you know, what we have at this point, you know, and not discounting that. So I think that was part of that as well. And I think that's important because, uh, you know, there is some kind of a therapy in that, you know, that, that, you know, (laughs) when you kind of start getting down on yourselves, you just kind of regroup and say, okay, um, but let's just pay attention to what we do have. And, you know, and the people we do have, you know, and the circumstance we are in, you know, and so I think that's really good. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and again, it kind of gets back to that wonderful little exchange, you know, feeding of the 5,000, um, you know, at that point, I mean, of course, the disciples had not paid attention. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. And when Jesus gets them to begin to pay attention, there's almost this wonderfully unheroic moment where, you know, they say, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess now having paid attention, there are these two fish and these, you know, couple loaves. Yeah. Um, and, and here's part of, again, what I wonder, Rick, theologically, um, is that is paying attention the mechanism that can begin to actually take things that might at first glance not look like much of abundance, right? Mm-hmm. A couple of fish, a couple of loaves, but by paying attention to it, it actually begins to become abundant. And one of the ways I think about that, and you and I are, you know, long enough in the tooth now where we can have some grandfather conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'll have these conversations with you know my my grandkids who are still quite young, and when I pause, when I actually put down the New York Times, right? Uh, when I actually look at you know Miles or Jay or Kennedy, um, and ask them questions uh, again, paying attention, something begins to happen. Right. Mm-hmm. There's a there's there's an energy or a force or something that has now entered in in a way that before, even though they were sitting next to me and I, you know, wasn't paying attention, it wasn't happening. And so, um, <clears throat> I mean, I'd yeah. be curious with you as a grandfather as well, if you've had that same experience, but I there's there's just this moment. It's like put the paper down, Dave, <laughs> <laughs> you know, turn, turn yeah. the game off. Uh, yeah. Get yeah. down on the floor and play. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I think that happens. And uh, a lot of times, too, I think in the, uh, you know, since we kind of find ourselves in the elder mentor groove, you know, we, we're telling <laughs> we're telling the kids things, you know, and, th- you know, here, here's another thing you need to learn. Uh, yeah. And and when we do just stop and pay attention, then we start learning from them as well. And I know yeah, that's uh, pretty funny. Um, like like uh, we have a six year old uh, blue and he said, uh, you know, we just the other day, uh, just kind of stopped and, you know, looked at him and said, how are you doing blue? And he said, I know bad words. <laughs> and I was like, you do? <laughs> yeah. And he said, uh, yes, I know the S word and the H word. And I was like, oh, okay. Wow. You know, you want to stand for me? <laughs> and he goes, okay. Uh, the S word is stupid and the H word is hate, you know? And I thought ah, those good. actually are like kind of bad words you know i mean that's i was good. thinking of you know more the, uh, the generic slang you know oh, yeah. words but you yeah. know and i started saying well you know you taught me a lot about those those are those are bad words and i i haven't thought about that for a long time um that's and, great yeah so i just think that you're right it's it's uh it kind of leads into the second one which is uh not only paying attention to you know what we have where you know where we are but also to the people 
the, the humans, you know, the capital that way. Yeah. Again, I I thought Randy was, uh, and and Carlos were articulate about that. Um, You know, particularly this idea that, you know, that, that what sits within people, you know, oftentimes is this untapped potential uh, and they just simply haven't been given an opportunity, right. Or Mm -hmm. the resource or, you know, the encouragement. And when you begin to think about, again, your city that way, um, it becomes a a really remarkable um, sort of opportunity to engage some of these, uh, these Mm -hmm. people, oftentimes people have overlooked or, you know, uh, uh, looked around them and, and things begin to happen. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's extraordinary. And again, I think, you know, not to make everything always about Jesus, but it kind of goes back again to Jesus and these disciples, this group that nobody would have picked. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Somehow they represented a kind of, you know, expansive uh, leadership potential that he knew would actually change the world. And it's, yeah. a, it's extraordinary to think about it in that way. Yeah, it is. In fact, I was thinking about this, uh, this idea of, you know, recognizing, uh, you know, the human capital. And when I was reading about um, that story, you know, in, in John uh, chapter two, where, uh, you know, Philip says, Nathaniel, I think I found the guy. I found him. I found the guy. John, John says, he's the guy, you know, and Nathaniel says, oh, wow. You know, wow. You know, I'm devout. You know, I'm interested. Yeah. Where's he at? He said, well, he's in Nazareth. And then he goes, no, no nothing, <laughs> nothing good is going to come out of Nazareth, you know? And then, yeah. and then, you know, his response was, well, what, you know, ch- ch- come and see, you know, check it out. You'll see. And yeah. I think what's interesting is that when he met Jesus, you know, uh, Jesus go, wow, here's an Israelite who, who's a straight shooter. And yeah. he goes, how do you know me? And he said, hey, I knew you back when, you know, you thought nobody knew you. And and just the recognition That's of Jesus, Rick. you know, I mean, and then it just it like blew his mind. You know, he's That's like, excellent. <clears throat> and then Jesus said, wow, you know, that that blows your mind that <laughs> that I that I that I know you. Uh, yeah. You know, just get ready, you know. And so I think that the uh, the idea of it's kind of an extension of paying attention, but um, yep. paying attention to, the, you know, to the people and even the people that would say nothing good can come out of this. Yeah. You know, yeah. In fact, I love that, Rick. That's a, that's excellent. That, that should be one that you put in your back pocket there for a little sermon coming up here in one of these Sundays. <laughs> well, you know, you know, that's, that's the good thing we, you know, if the, if we weren't able to, uh, you know, plagiarize some of the scriptures, we'd be stuck, Dave. <laughs> yeah. I mean, cause it did remind me of a, of a deal that came up in the Catholic liturgy this past week. And it's of course, um, you know, in the book of Judges, which is, you know, never been my idea of a good time. Uh, and, uh, you know, kind of get moved to this story of Gideon. Mm-hmm. And the way the scripture makes it very clear is that Gideon is a part of the least of the 12 tribes. And that within those 12 tribes, his clan is the least of the <laughs> clan. And with his family, he appears to be kind of the, uh, you know, the weak link there as well. Mm-hmm. And when the angel of the Lord shows up, he is effectively, you know, hidden in this sort of barrel in this threshing floor, uh, trying to hide from the Midianites. And the very first thing the angel says is, well, mighty warrior of God. Right. And I just can imagine, you know, getting, looking around going, who, I mean, <laughs> right? you, you, must, you must be kidding me. Yeah. Like what was it? What kind of potential leadership potential did they see in this yeah. guy that was, you know, hiding? Um, yeah. And I yeah. just, 
it gives me one great hope in my own life when I'm trying to hide from things to be sure. Yeah. But it, it allows me to see a whole new perspective on people, you know, partners, groups that LF works with is what kind of hidden potential might there be here? And I think again, Randy and, and Carlos really got that in a yeah. wonderful way. Yeah, that's true. And then, uh, and, I guess the third extension of that idea is that, um, you know, they, they mentioned that the programs that are maybe the main priorities for them or, you know, kind of the bellwether programs are not something that you should, uh, you know, be so permanently uh, attached to that you, yeah. you miss, you miss out. Yeah. I think for us, it, it has a lot to do with, a posture that says we're going to hold on to what we've owned loosely. We're going to give credit widely. And, and we have this sentiment that no one organization has everything it needs, uh, but that the city as a whole does have the talent and the resources necessary to approach solutions. And I can't think of anything we do as an organization, you know, as a leadership foundation, a local leadership foundation, as the CCT that doesn't operate from that sense that we're, we're not doing this alone, even in who does the training, we partner with other organizations, even to do our training, right? We link ourselves with other organizations. So it's not just our staff putting on this training, but every neighborhood partnership, a local entity, for example, uh, is a partner with us in putting on this kind of capacity building training. Um, we partner with them and one of their initiatives in uh, they, they're trying to, to link churches to every school, every elementary school in the city. And so we wrote them into a grant that we're, we received with the Lilly Foundation um, to help them expand that to beyond Fresno to some of the rural communities around uh, because we could. And so we incorporate them in our training. They incorporate us in their training. It's no longer an us and them, but it's a we. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a different posture and a different way of seeing. And it's inherently strengthening, inherently encouraging, actually. Uh, you're not just trying to keep your own little empire alive, right? You realize, you realize you, you're, you're about something much larger, the health of a city. And uh, that's been really a real key for us. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I mean, you know, Bill Milliken, who looms large, you know, um, within the LF, you know, universe, you know, has famously said forever, and people like David Brooks of the New York Times has quoted him, but, you know, relationships change people, you know, yeah. prog programs don't. Programs are only means, you know, by which to get us to the end. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, one of the things we've always got to be on guard about is how easy it is to exchange that means and end. I mean, I think, you know, I've talked about this before, Rick, but, you know, Thomas Aquinas, for all of his, you know, wonderful theology, I mean, he kind of boils evil down to that evil is the uh, confusion of ends and means. Um, and when you unpack that with regard to this question, I think it's true where all of a sudden an organization begins to get wrapped around its programmatic sort of expression. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how do you fund it? How do you measure it? You know, how do you report it? 
And then what gets lost in that exchange, of course, is the person, her or himself, that the program was meant to serve in the first place. Yeah. Um, one of the most difficult things for our leadership foundations uh, has been when they launch these successful programs, uh, then to hold on to it loosely. Yeah. Because one of the things you just instinctively feel is like, okay, this is the way I'm finally going to be able to get some money coming in the door. Um, and so to do that counterintuitive thing where you say, you know, this is a good program, uh, but there are other, you know, issues, uh, other perspectives that need to be developed. And so I'm going to hold on to this as loosely as I can. And even if need be, give it away to <laughs> another organization. Ran, or, uh, Larry Lloyd, the Memphis Leadership Foundation, talks about how I think now after 30 odd years, there's something close to 40 different nonprofits that have populated the uh, city of Memphis that were all originally uh, an initiative or a program of the Memphis Leadership Foundation. Mm. Uh, but it was Larry's idea, and I think this has proved out to be true, uh, that they were becoming cumbersome, right, in mm -hmm. keeping the Memphis Leadership Foundation from really kind of, you know, focusing in on people. So they needed to give it away. And Fresno um, and the Center for Community Transformation has done exactly that as well. And, and again, Randy bringing up that point is just pitch perfect. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Well, I think it kind of gets down to the, you know, almost like the Sabbath issue with Jesus where, you know, people were saying, hey, you're not doing the Sabbath, right? Exactly. He goes, well, is does this exist, you know, you know, to, are we serving this or is this serving us? You know, what, what exactly. happens here? Yeah. And uh, yeah. So yeah, I think that's, that's really amazing. And then, you know, the, uh, the, the idea sometimes though, that we have, we should maybe brush up against is that sometimes when you're in a faith uh, endeavor, uh, you know, when anybody talks about abundance or even resource or even budget, or even like, you know, like fundraising or, you know, capital kinds of issues, it's like, well, now you're getting kind of secular over here. I mean, you know, that's like, it's almost yeah. seen like, yeah. you know, I thought we were going to stay spiritual, you know? And, and yeah. uh, so I just think that's been one of the interesting uh, disconnects, you know? Yep. Yeah. I mean, I, I oftentimes think about this idea with something that uh, Hilliard de Chardin, the kind of famous Jesuit said a number of years ago, he says, for the man or woman who knows how to see nothing is profane. Hmm. And I think, again, Randy, you know, and, and I would just say Leadership Foundation's writ large, <clears throat> you know, because we know how to see and the fact that, you know, if you're going to see a city healed, you have to have uh, the business system of that, mm -hmm. you know, city working hand in hand with the nonprofit and the nonprofit has got to be looking at the faith community. I mean, it, it, it. It's absolutely key. And I do think you're right that there's oftentimes been almost a bit of a red circle drawn around the business class uh, by particularly faith-motivated people because it's almost as though, you know, that's the whore of Babylon, right? That's, yeah. that's it's, and uh, something that I've been proud about in the LF network historically um, has been from the very beginning, our terrorism uh, with Sam Shoemaker, for example, he created the magazine, you know, Faith at Work, and it was designed uh, with the business person in mind um, mm -hmm. because that's where they were spending most of their time. And uh, and so let's get out of this idea that we can get it all done on Sunday. 
and let's begin to think about Monday through Saturday. Um, and so, again, I think Randy has has done that, uh, and and Carlos as well, in some pretty remarkable ways. And when you get down there, I mean, like, I had a chance to sit in on their Shark Tank uh, thing, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, it was. Uh, I mean, it was just, it was just spectacular, but it was, it was like right off the TV, right? Where they're getting up there and they've got five minutes to do their deal. And, Mm -hmm. you know, what was their idea going to be? And they're winning money for, you know, the thing and they get a coach. And I mean, there wasn't, you know, I think a, a word of Jesus spoken, but the aroma was such Mm -hmm. in terms of the energy and the life and the sense of hope and joy uh, you, you know, you could not argue against the fact that the gospel was there uh, in yeah. some pretty remarkable ways. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I saw this happen, David, when I was in Canada. And there was a, a construction company that was building this building. And I was taken back because when I went in there, all the guys that were the construction guys were all wearing like these um, like golf shirts and they all looked like they were getting ready to go golfing or something. And so I thought it was kind of weird looking. And what I found out was they're actually a, like an actual construction company, but um, they're, uh, they're Jesus follower. Uh, guys, you know, that they're from mm-hmm. actually a, a Mennonite expression of Christianity and uh, and they're building for the Lord. This is what, so I talked to the guy for a long time and they were just building this building like an office building, but they just said that, you know, I mean, the it's, God's people are going to be inhabiting every one of these offices and it's to his glory that we're making sure everything is straight. And anyway, it was just this, it was, yeah. it was such a great experience for me to see that, you know, hey, um, uh, you know, that idea that whatever you do, you know, I mean, do it you know, under the Lord for the master. Yeah. yeah. So like, yeah. I think that's, that's, what's uh, great about this idea of uh, um, understanding entrepreneurship, you know, with that kind of lens as well, which then, you know, wraps us back around to paying attention. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I thought, uh, you know, Randy's use of the second King story of Elisha and the, and the widow <clears throat> to illustrate that kind of innovative entrepreneurial ship. Mm-hmm. Uh, was was just again pitch perfect. I mean, it's it's that's exactly right. And uh, and watching that story and the way Randy tells it um, grow right <clears throat> to the point where now yeah. this becomes almost a, a symbolic, you know, representation of all things uh, abundant. So yeah, yeah. Very, very nice. Well, special thanks to uh, Randy White and uh, Carlos Huerta. And one of the things about hearing uh, from these guys is that. You know, Fresno may have been in our head, but now it's in our heart, and so it's mm. uh, it causes us to to sort of uh, have a different response to you know that part of the world and the work uh, that's going yep. on there. And we uh, we always wrap up our episodes with a recommendation, uh, something that helps us more clearly see or pay attention, as we've been saying. Uh, the city is a playground, and that opens us uh, to the idea that we can have clarity and uh, begin to understand the city like God understands the city. So uh, we have that recommendation uh, this time from Randy and Carlos. So that'll be exciting. Let's check it yeah, out. One. Uh, I'll, I'll put an old resource out there instead of a new one because it has been so profound for us. And that's Ray Bakke's book, A Theology as Big as the City. Utterly changed the way I see cities. And a close associate 
of Ray Bakke, Fletcher Tink, who asks an incredibly profound question that I think every, um, every person who wants to be uh, a transformational influence in their city uh, needs to answer. And that is, Fletcher's famous for asking, you live in your city, but does your city live in you? In other words, how deeply have you let your city become part of your story? Um, Ray Bakke says cities are living organisms and not just places, but processes. And, and when you think about it, process in, infers story, how we connect to the story of God that's being written over the ages. Fletcher's question, you live in your city, but does your city live in you? is really asking, are you going to let the story of God in your city that's being written right now become part of your narrative too? And how closely is that centered to the core of your being? Um, that's an important question. When, when, when Paul was in Athens, it said he was moved deeply to the core of his being when he saw idols um, and even a an idol to the unknown God. Um, it moved him to the core of his being. Have you wept for your city? All of these things I learned from, from Ray and from Fletcher and from many others in the LF network that live this every day. And I'm still moved by it. I didn't really have a resource, but as Randy talked, you know, I, I, I continually think of Acts 17, right? Where, Paul is addressing the people of Athens, right? And I think he simply, I think he simply said, and as I walked through your city carefully, I looked carefully, right? And obviously he's rebuking them in this time. So it, maybe this isn't the best time to bring this up, right? But I, I think of the care that Paul took in each and every city to see what's written in each of those altars, right? And in the same way, I, I've been thoroughly transformed early on in, in my professional career, if you will, through the, the book When Helping Hurts, right? And there's, a, there's one concept that the Chalmers Center introduces is four key relationships, right? Relationship with God, ourselves, with each other, and with God's creation. Um, and pursuing shalom for us, again, is restoring things to the way God intended them, to be for people and people and between people. Um, and so really seeing our, our role in bringing kind of this holistic healing, uh, you know, whether it's socially, environmentally, economically, ment mentally, physically, and spiritually, um, we feel a call to that. And so to me, if, if there was a resource I could give someone it would say, you know, explore what, what are those four key relationships? What do they look like in your city, not just individually, but also institutionally? And it's really giving me new eyes for our city and the people who live in our city and, and just the brokenness, if you will, that exists in our city. At the same time, the, the great call that we have to, to bring shalom into those relationships. Well, Dave. There we go. Center for Community Transformation. And I myself transformed by this uh, conversation. And I thank you for, uh, for uh, inviting me on the journey. Oh, absolutely, Rick. Always a joy. All right. We'll look forward to next time. See you then.
Thank you.